0: You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our scripture scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 17, 14 to 23. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out, inst- came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus pri- privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say, this to, the- you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather and to worship together this morning. God, we ask that you would just calm our hearts and our minds and that whatever baggage we might be carrying with us from the past week, that you would just help us to lay it down and to focus on your word. God, help us to have faith like Jesus describes in this passage. Open our hearts to receive whatever messages you have prepared for us. God, I also want to pray for Remnant and to thank you for the work that you've already been doing in that community. We ask that you would grow their numbers and continue to use them to make yourself known in Topeka. Lastly, God, we pray for Central. Um, As we get closer to the holiday season, this can be such a difficult time for students and for adults. And we just ask that everyone who comes through these doors would feel loved and valued and that your supernatural peace would surround this building. We also ask that you would use our presence here to bring more and more people to know you. All these things we pray in your name. Amen.
1: All right. Good morning. All right. A little bit of feedback to wake us all up early. Uh, We'll dial that in. Alexis, thank you for reading and thank you for praying. And if, uh, if you hadn't prayed for Remnant, I was going to pray right off the bat. If you heard that, uh, heard uh, Ethan, he repeated it at least three times, please pray for us. Please pray for us. So as the Lord brings it to mind, please remember to pray for Remnant. Cav, thank you for leading worship this morning. Thank you for that liturgy. Drew us into the presence of God. Appreciate it. Well, Last week, um, Casey preached on this verses preceding mine. And uh, remember where we were? Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John and had taken them up to a high mountain and um, was transfigured before them. His face became like the sun. His garments became white as light, Mark says, or Matthew says, and Mark says, they were whiter than any launderer on earth could make them. That's pretty white. And uh, so today, we're coming down from that mountaintop. Let me get a range to this thing down here. Here we go. That's better. I think last time I was up here, I waving my arms, hitting things. So try not to do that today. So we were on the mountaintop last week. This week, we come down one step at a time. Um, the way I read it, three steps down from that mountaintop. We well, went on the mountaintop. Remember, God chose to say three things. And he gave one command. When Jesus was transformed, Peter got pretty excited, as he did. And he spoke, as he did, when he got excited. I'm going to make a tabernacle, one for you, Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And God the Father chose to make an appearance then. The the number of people went from six to seven, all of a sudden. And he he said, uh, out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then all the things he could have said and commanded, listen to him. When on the mountaintop, listen to him. They were spiritually on a mountaintop. They were physically on a mountaintop. Listen to Jesus. And when you go down into the pits of the valley, um, and this is my outline, three things to keep in mind. If you've listened to him on the mountaintop, then uh, pray to him. Right? The Father had a great need and He prayed. The disciples couldn't do what they probably ought to have been able to do, and they were depending on themselves. So, when you're tempted to depend on yourself, back away from it, depend on Jesus. The third point when you get bad news, maybe the worst news you can imagine, will you trust Jesus? So, the, the points kind of all sound the same, I suppose. Pray to Jesus, depend on Jesus, trust in Jesus. Uh, but as you'll see, each little scenario, gives a different facet on that jewel. Um, I think of those three things, maybe other facets, but uh, you may want to turn this something down a little bit. I think we're getting quite a bit of feedback. Do I need to move back or something? Or, anyway, we'll, we'll get it figured out. Um, and I try to figure out, well, what is that jewel? If those are three facets on the jewel, and I think if you're praying to someone besides yourself, you're depending on someone besides yourself and you're trusting someone beside yourself, That jewel may just be humility. Maybe something else, but at least it's humility. And so those are three beautiful facets on the jewel of humility. So that's my outline. When in great need or small need, pray to Jesus. When tempted to meet that need in the power of your own flesh, depend on Jesus. When given unwelcome news, will you trust Jesus? Well, as I was preparing this intro, it seemed that uh, two truths came to mind about mountaintops. How many people have climbed, uh, you know, Colorado has 53 or 55, depending on how you count them. Mountains that are 14,000 feet or higher. Anybody here climbed any of those? Okay. Yeah, there's a few hands up. I've climbed a few of them. I had a buddy who climbed all of them, and I climbed a few of them with him. And uh, you, you who've done this, or climbed anything remotely close, realize that, um, so, when I climbed, I was acclimatized to probably six or 7,000 feet already. I was living in Colorado, Colorado Springs. But once you get to the 12,000, 13,000 foot level, you are, you're taking a few steps, and you're always going uphill, right? And then you have to stop and breathe. And then uh, take a few more steps, and you need to stop and breathe. And, you know, they have a yearly marathon up Pikes Peak, and a half marathon that goes up, and a full marathon that goes up and back down. And some people run both of those. It's one, one after another, uh, two different days. Um, I don't know how they do it, but uh, I, I, I made it, but barely. Well, it takes a lot of work. That's my first point. It takes a lot of work to get to the top of a mountain, doesn't it? The disciples didn't get beamed up there. They had to walk up one step at a time. It takes work to get to a mountaintop, physically and spiritually, right? Um, I don't think I have too many mountaintops spiritually in my life. I have a lot of hilltops, and I try to get a hilltop every day. And uh, so uh, just opening up your word, God's word, spending time in it, thinking about it, that takes some work and takes some time, doesn't it? Well, the second truth about mountains are once you're up there, uh, pretty much the only way is down right? Any, anywhere you go, it's down from the mountaintop. You go over here, it's down. Well, let's try to go this way. No, that's down too. All right? So, um, so it takes a lot of work to get to the top and, and pretty much every way is down. And so today we're going down. And that truth about taking a lot of work to get to the top we will come to that way at the end of the sermon again. Well, what happens when you come down from the top? Is that when real life hits? Which one was the real life? The mountaintop Or the valley and the pits that follow? Well, here's what I think. The pit is certainly real enough, but I don't think that's the ultimate reality. And in fact, I think that the truth that I find on the mountaintop or the truth that I find on the hilltop is the thing that takes me through the valleys that follow afterwards. Now, can God speak in the pits and in the valleys? Absolutely, he does. Uh, But I find generally, at least in my life, Mostly when I hear from God, when I'm in the pit, in the valley, it's something that he's shown me when I was on a hilltop. Whether it was that morning or whether it was yesterday or whether it was maybe years ago, uh, generally, if you keep your feet grounded and listen to the sun on the mountaintop, those things come back later to help you through the valleys. All right. So we're going to start the first step down in a moment. Meanwhile, let me just open up. Since I've talked about prayer, let me just pray. Lord, you know uh, what you have spoken to me in this passage. You know that as I speak, I will speak to the cubic air or the cubic foot of air in front of my mouth. Uh, But only you can speak to hearts. And I pray that you would do the work that I cannot do. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah, would you do that, Lord Jesus? I pray this in your precious name. Amen. All right, so this first step down is pray to Jesus. We're going to read about that in verse 14 through 16. Hey, watch this. There it is. (laughs) I have a note on the bottom of uh, chapter 16. On 22nd of January, 2016, so going on eight years ago, I spilled water on these pages. (laughs) Finally, I get to preach out of those pages that it falls open to. (laughs) And you thought that I've worked so hard that my Bible just opens naturally to this. No, not really. All right, so verses 14 through 16. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, For he is, um, what was read this morning was not what my, I'm reading New American Standards, so it's going to vary a little bit from what's up on the screen, if they show it on the screen. Um, He's a lunatic. He's a lunatic and he's very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. First, let's talk about lunatic. The Greek word actually is seleniazo, and selena is the Greek word for moon. And uh, so, really what they're saying, he's been moonstruck. And back then, they thought that uh, symptoms exhibited by something like epilepsy, which is is probably what he was exhibiting, um, were caused by the influence of the moon. So he's been moonstruck. And uh, luna is the Latin word for moon. And so my version calls him a lunatic. He's been struck by the moon. He's a lunatic, and he's very ill. Now... When this guy came to Jesus, it was literally an act of prayer, isn't it? He came to Jesus. He fell on his knees. He did something like this or like this and said, Lord, help me. Um, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my son. Um, he, and he just laid it out. He's, he's been struck by the moon and uh, he's very ill. He falls in the fire. He falls in the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't cure him. So, Lord, what can you do? Let's just talk about the father's pain for a minute. You, those of you with kids, children or grandchildren, you know that when they're in serious sickness or when they're injured or they're in pain, whether it was their fault or not, right? We're going to sort that out later. <laughs> right now, you're injured, and we're going to get, all, get you the best help that we can. And your heart hurts with their heart and, and with their bodies. Um when our daughter was probably three and a half years old, she came running down, she had a full mouth of baby teeth, and she came running down the stairs, tripped, fell, and there was a couch that had these large wooden chunks at the bottom, and she hit right against that with her teeth. And we found one tooth, she, there were two missing. We found one, and we rushed to the dentist, and he said, yeah, we really can't put that back in, but I know where your second one is. It had been pushed right up into her gum. <laughs> and, uh, poor Amy. Uh, sweet little girl. Um, she was so brave about the whole thing. Um, after the initial screaming and crying. Um, but so, uh, so she never did get that, uh, that tooth back in until the permanent tooth came in. So every time she smiled, it was kind of cute actually. There was, a, there was a little gap there where that baby tooth had been. But every time I saw her, uh, for a long time afterwards, there was this little pang. I hurt with my little daughter who went through that experience. And you could come up here and you could tell all sorts of stories yourself like that. This is what this father was feeling uh, exponentially more than that. Imagine a son. You can't do anything about it. He stiffens up, falls down, foams at the mouth. Uh, Mar- I'm bringing some stuff in from Mark 9, which is a parallel passage. And he falls in the water, falls in the fire, can't do anything about it. I was going to make a joke about it's a good thing he falls in the water because he just fell in the fire. I don't know. I don't know how funny that really is. Notice one other, kind of a secondary thought. He did not tell Jesus how to fix the problem, did he? He just came with this great need and he laid it out to Jesus and asked to do it. I often catch myself, maybe not so much anymore because I've caught myself so often, trying to prescribe to God how to answer Uh, my prayer and how to figure out this problem that I'm struggling with and when I catch myself I got to say Lord you don't need me to explain how to fix this you just fix it please and that's what this guy did Um, and then finally from this these verses I I just want to say he was maybe disappointed I mean I mean he was certainly disappointed that the disciples couldn't cast it out he the father but maybe was there a little bit of rebuke that Jesus disciples couldn't cast it out here's why I say that In Mark 9, 14, um, it adds some detail that's not in the Matthew passage. It says, when they came down from the mountain, they saw a great crowd, and they saw a bunch of scribes arguing with the disciples. Well, what do you suppose they were arguing about? Well, the scribes, who took every opportunity to discredit and undermine uh, the mission of Jesus and the acts of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus... Uh, They saw that the disciples were not able to do what they wanted to do. And they tried to cast it out. They couldn't. So the scribes came in. You guys are not legit. Your mission is not legit. Your rabbi is not legit. And they were having this fierce argument going on. And I wonder if the father of this guy caught a little bit of that spirit. He was disappointed. He heard the scribes. And maybe a little bit of accusation to Jesus. I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't cast him out. Can you do it? Um, now a question should the disciples have been able to cast it out should the disciples have been able to cast out that demon and by the way it does clearly say it was a demon we'll, we'll see that uh, and put, put, uh, another small rabbit trail the guy was probably epileptic but he had a demon do all epileptics have demons I don't think so How many epileptics have demons? Well, my considered medical opinion, I don't know. My theological opinion, I don't know. But that's why we get the best medical help we can get. And that's why we pray in addition to getting the best medical help we can get. Right? Um, So, but should they have been able to cast out that demon? How many people, I'm going to say, how many people think they should have been able to cast out the demon? All right, a little bit. How many say, nah, I don't think they should have expected. Okay? How many just... Looks like a whole bunch of people don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, I didn't know either until I thought about it a little bit. And uh, then I realized, okay, well, let's turn back to Matthew 10, quickly. Verse 7. Jesus sends out the 12. What does he tell them to do when he sends them out? Verse 7 of chapter 10 in the book of Matthew. As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Maybe even more amazing, Luke 10. That was Matthew 10. Let's look at Luke 10. He sends out not the 12, but he sends out 72 others. And he doesn't give those details to the 72, but when they came back to him in verse 17, listen to what they said. The 72. Two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. How many people think they should have been able to cast out the demon? (laughs) Yeah, they should have been able to cast out that demon. And we're going to see, we're going to talk about that in a minute, because they come back and say, why couldn't we do it? Jesus gives them a very good answer. Um, Okay. But meanwhile, back to this, uh, back to the passage. Verse 17. And Jesus answered and said, okay, so I brought them to your disciples. They couldn't cure him. Can you? And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted, I think your version might say twisted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Here's this father who's already hurting because of what his son is going through. And Jesus kind of lays into him a little bit. And that's the reason I think this man had caught the spirit of those scribes. Jesus was speaking to the man, yes, but he was speaking to this whole generation. Was he angry? Maybe. We know that he was tempted in all things we are, yet without sin. So if he was angry, he didn't sin. But maybe he was angry. Um, He was probably weary and sad at the generation he was describing. Here's at least a few things he was weary of. The scribes and others who outright opposed him. The Pharisees who thought that they could earn righteousness through following the law as carefully as they could, but without the heart. The Sadducees who tried to find fulfillment in something that looks like 2 Timothy 3.5, holding to a form of godliness, kind of, sort of, while denying its power things they didn't believe in. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They didn't believe in angels. Uh, they didn't believe in spirits. Uh, so they're holding a form of God. I don't know what kind of form they're holding on to, but without any of the power. Jesus, when they tried to trip him up about this trick question, of this woman who married a man, died, married his brother, died, married seven brothers. She must have been hard to live with. She ran through these seven brothers and they said, who, whose will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus had to straighten him out. And he basically, then he, he finally follows it up with, is this not the reason that you're mistaken, that you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God? You are greatly mistaken. He's weary with that kind of stuff. And the Herodians, who were all about power, they were the power structure in that region. And the, they dreamed up every excess that they could and lived with it. And so, in short, Jesus is weary of this generation of people who are seeking neither the Father nor the Son, nor are they listening to them. Far from a mountaintop, they're not even seeking or listening. And you know what else I believe he was voicing a little bit of weariness with? I think a little bit at least with the disciples, who should have been able to cast out the demon, but they weren't able to. And again, we'll talk about why in a little bit. Yet, In spite of all that, he says, bring him here to me. And in verse 18, Jesus rebuked him, the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. He was healed instantly. Yet, in spite of who they were, broken as they were, as incomplete and twisted that that generation was, Jesus had compassion on the Father who had great need and had come to him for help. Isn't that a, encouragement to us we're broken too and our understanding is not where it could be and uh, we're we're a little bit twisted up if he had answered that guy's prayer and in the face of all this opposition from the crowd um, will he not answer our prayers as well Um, at least a couple points for us the first one um, I read a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller and one of the key things I remember from this book was he says, when your life is messed up and you got all this stuff going on, you just need to come to Jesus. And he says the two words, come messy. Don't wait until you're doing better uh, to come to Jesus, but come messy. Bring your mess. If there's sin that needs to be confessed, bring that as part of your mess. Lord Jesus, forgive me for these things. And, uh, And then move on and ask Jesus what you need his help with. The father didn't try to clean himself up, did he? He just ran up, fell on his knees, implored Jesus to help and have mercy on his son. Another example, when Jesus was coming out of Jericho on the road down to Jerusalem for the last time in the flesh, uh, as he left Jericho, there was a a guy, Mark calls him Bartimaeus, and he was blind. Matthew says there were two men, so probably Bartimaeus and a friend. And... um, they sensed that Jesus was coming by. They could hear. and They knew what was happening. And they cried out, uh, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And uh, the crowd, you know, you're, you're blind. You're probably wicked. That's why you're blind. You don't have anything going for you. Jesus is not going to waste his time on you. They told him to shut up. They just cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And then Jesus came over to them. And do you remember what he said to them? Do you remember what he asked? He asked them a question. What do you want me to do for you? Well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? But isn't that good? What do you want me to do for you? And they said, we want to regain our sight. And, And he gave it to them. He helped them to regain their sight. Touched them and healed them. Well, how would you answer that question right now? Is Jesus asking you that question? What do you want me to do for you? And you know, each one of us here, you know, we have issues. We have stuff going on. We need prayer. We need Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Is he asking you that question? I could, I could do that, uh, that survey again. How many people say yes? Uh, I'll just say yes, he is asking you that question. And I'm going to turn to John. The, the night before Jesus was... Betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified. He spent a long time, all night, with his disciples. In chapters 14 and 15 and 16, I'm going to read these three chapters. No, I'm not going to read these three chapters. I'm going to read two verses out of each chapter. And they are so clear and they are so obvious that we think that's too good to be true and we turn off to these verses. But I'm going to read these and I want these to soak in. So Holy Spirit, may these soak into our lives, into our thinking. First verse, chapter 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask the Father, or whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. What do you want me to do for you? Chapter 15, verse 16, the fourth verse, the last half, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Chapter 16, verse 23, the fifth verse, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And verse 24, the sixth verse, until now you've asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Now, we could put all sorts of qualifiers on those verses and say, he doesn't really mean that. I think he does literally mean that. I will will put one qualifier. God's timing and God's method are his. But these promises are ours. And he intends for us to claim them. That's maybe the second thing that sticks with me from Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. He said, what about these outlandish promises in John 14, 15, and 16? Six verses. The night before he was betrayed, he wanted to make sure he got this message to them. Pray, brethren, pray, and I will do it. Well, God's, again, his timing and his method are his, but these promises are ours. It's a challenge. Every athlete that goes out for a sport dreams of the coach saying, I want you in that game. (laughs) Jesus, in the biggest game of all, Jesus is saying to you, the Father wants you off the sideline and in the game. And he gives us these promises. If you get in the game, I will, I'll be there with you. I will be helping you. I will support you. I will do what you ask. So let me just take a moment to ask this question. How was your prayer life? Almost everyone. My father-in-law used to jokingly say, if you want to humble anyone, ask them how their prayer life is. <laughs> um, and That's right. You could ask me and I'd be a little bit humbled. Um, how was your prayer life? Is it where you want it to be? Is it where the Lord would like it to be? And before before you start to feel guilty, I don't want to guilt you into anything. Before you start to feel guilty, a freeing thought. Over the last few years, I've begun to come to this conclusion. I think there is a point of satisfaction where both you and the Lord are happy with your prayer life. It has to be so. God can't always be disappointed in our prayer lives, right? Something has to be right. He doesn't want us to be disappointed either. There is a point somewhere, probably a moving target, where you're happy with your prayer life and God is happy with your prayer life. Like I said, it's probably a moving target. Probably has nothing to do with the number of minutes that you spend in prayer. I'm a minutes guy. I love to put things down and check those boxes off. I don't think it has anything to do with that. Here's what I do think it has to do with. Listening to the Holy Spirit, being in touch with the Holy Spirit, and when he prompts you to pray, you pray. I think that's half of it. I honestly think there's another half. How organized is my prayer life? Do I even know what I prayed last week? Do I know what I prayed yesterday? If you bring a little organization to your prayer life and a little consistency, uh, I think that's the other part of a prayer life that you can be happy with and the Father certainly will be happy with. It's not a work. It's not a merit. It's not a fa- earning favor. It's just, Lord, I want to do this discipline. I'm going to do it well. And I want you to be happy. I want you to be happy. I want your joy to fill me. I want to know that you're happy with my prayer life. All right. Well, come to the Lord and ask him for that point where both of you are happy with your prayer life. All right. That's my first... <laughs> That's my first uh, point of uh, Jesus answered the prayer of the broken man. The second point is, man, he was cured at once. He was healed instantly. I studied the book of Mark in ROTC our Bible study a few years ago, and the thing that stands out to me most, it reminds me the most of Mark is, Jesus had absolute authority and uh, control over all creation. How long did Jesus have to struggle in the boat before the sea and the wind were still? <laughs> he just had to say it, and it happened. So the deluge of the storm, I'm using a D because I've, these all start with D. It helps me to remember. The deluge of the storm at sea, uh, it couldn't stand before Jesus. What about when the Pharisees and Sadducees tried to trip him out, and they got into a debate, and they asked him tough questions, these really hard questions? Uh, How long did he ever have to agonize over those questions? Never. No debate. Tripped up Jesus. He won every debate. What disease stayed in the body when he said to go? No disease stayed. It went. What about demons? When he went to cast out a demon, how many demons stayed? Never a one. He said to leave. It was gone. What about death? We know at least three examples. A 12-year-old little girl had just died. Jesus raised her up. She was back to life. Uh, The man who was already dead and on his way to be put in a tomb in the city of Nain, Jesus stopped the train, touched him, raised him up from the dead, gave him back to his widowed mother. Lazarus, of course, was dead for four days, and he was been he'd been in the tomb, and uh, Jesus had no problem raising him from the dead. Whether deluge, debate, demons, disease, or death, Jesus has absolute control. And when he told that boy, rebuked that demon, the demon's gone and the boy was healed instantly. All right. That's the first step down. Uh, Let's talk about the next step down. Verses 19 through 21. And if you look at your Bibles, many of you do not have verse 21. I'm going to read it anyway. (laughs) Okay? Okay. then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, we could, why couldn't we drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith or because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer. That's verse 21. It's not in most of your... Versions and that's okay. Here's why: the earliest and best Greek manuscripts do not contain verse 21 in this section, but the earliest and best Greek manuscripts do contain Matthew 9:29, which is a parallel passage to this, and it says this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And probably what happened um, in subsequent trans not translations but um, when you take a new scribe and you take a copy and you make another copy and you make another copy, some scribe along that route said, this verse is a really good verse, Mark 9, 29. I'm going to take this, I'm going to place it where it's missing over in Matthew 17. That's going to be verse 21. And he added in the word fasting because that's that's what it says in the later versions of Matthew. Okay, so it was a well-meaning scribe and he wanted to make that as complete as the Mark passage. Probably shouldn't have done it, Um, It's in my version in brackets with that note. If you have the ESV, it's probably in your marginal notes at the bottom of your page or in the the middle or something. Um, But, uh, so the well-meaning scribe put it there. And me being a well-meaning preacher, I do want to include it because it is in the Mark 9 passage. And so why I wanted to include it is I just want to link faith and prayer. So why couldn't we drive it out? And I'm going to say to condense it down, it was a lack of faith combined with, or as demonstrated by, a lack of prayer. Why couldn't we cast it out? Lack of faith, which Jesus clearly said, and then he closed it out with demonstrated by a lack of prayer. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Clearly he was saying you didn't pray. All right? Um... We saw earlier they expected to cast out the demon in the Matthew 10 and Luke 10 passages, but, but you know how it is, right? When you are desperately praying about something and God does something, he answers. After a while, give it a little bit of time, we, in our memory, we begin to think that was maybe us. I, maybe I didn't do so bad after all of that, right? Um, and that was me, maybe. Um, we begin to think it's us and we begin to depend on the Lord less and less and upon ourselves more and more. Well, what's the danger? Do we have a verse on that? Yeah, we do. John 15, 5. I'm the vine. You are the branches, Jesus said. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's what they accomplished. A whole lot of nothing that day. They couldn't cast it out because of the littleness or because of their little faith. And it must have been pretty small because he says even a mustard seed worth is enough to see miraculous answers to prayer. The concept of moving mountains was a Jewish proverb for doing the impossible, so Jesus is quoting that proverb. But apparently they didn't even have a mustard seed of faith or they at least weren't exercising a mustard seed worth of faith. Clearly, they were trusting themselves and their historical ability to cast out demons, and they'd stop depending on Jesus. So, I want to contrast the littleness of the disciples' faith. And by the way, I'm not getting on their case. They're human just like we are. um, I fail just like they do. But I want to contrast the littleness of their faith with something Jesus called twice in the New Testament, great faith. And he commended two non-Jewish people a man and a woman with great faith the first was the Roman centurion It's in Matthew 8 he had a sick servant and he found Jesus and he said my servant is sick at home and would you please heal him and Jesus said I'll come he said you don't need to come under my roof I'm a man under authority if I tell a servant to go he goes if I tell a servant to come he comes I'm a man under authority and I know that you have authority to heal. You don't even have to come under my roof. You don't even have to see my servant to to, uh, heal him. And what did Jesus say? He looked at him and he marveled. It says in Matthew 8, he marveled when he saw him and he said, surely, truly, I've not seen such great faith among anyone in Israel. And he healed him. What about the Syrophoenician woman? Um, Jesus was up there and the Syrophoenician woman, what did she do? Well, she engaged with Jesus three times. She persisted. Her great faith was demonstrated by persistence. She came to him. He rebuffed her. I'm only sent to the sheep of Israel. She came again. He said, no, it's not right for me to give uh, food uh, that belonged to the children, to to the dogs, to the house pet. And She said, yeah, but even the crumbs that fall from the master's table, the dogs get. And what did he say to her? Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. Great faith, listen to these three statements. Great faith understands and lives by the authority of Jesus. Great faith persists in seeking help from Jesus. Little faith launches out on its own, all apart from Jesus. I'll just be honest. Of these three things I'm talking about today, prayer, dependence, and trust. Dependence is probably my biggest weakness, biggest failing. Um, Even when I'm working at it, it's a challenge. Um, You know, trying to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The older I get, um, I turned 71 in August. The older I get, my hearing is still pretty good. Um, Dorian and I have been tested. Our hearing is apparently fine. But one thing that's getting harder and harder is when we're in a loud, noisy room and we're trying to focus on a conversation, it's hard to pick out that person's voice with all the hubbub going on. And uh, it's kind of like that. Um, trying to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, It's got a still, small voice, right? And sometimes I jokingly say, Spirit, could you speak up just a little bit? I'm a little hard of hearing here. There's a lot of noise in the background and I'm having a little bit of a hard time hearing from you. But great faith understands the authority of Jesus. Great faith persists in seeking help from Jesus. Little faith launches out on its own with not even seeking help from Jesus. So Jesus, when he said they couldn't cast out the demon because of their little faith, and it could only be driven out by prayer, according to Mark 9, 29, he was clearly saying they hadn't prayed, hadn't depended on God, and so we're not acting by faith. Well, we also have issues in our lives, Right? They require us to believe in the authority of Jesus. Do we? They require some persistence in prayer on our part, don't they? You know, I talked about those verses in John and I do have to say God's timing is His because I prayed about some things that are long, long term still praying about them, still looking to see the answer. But you know what? I claim those promises. I know something is going to happen. You know, there's a guy named George Mueller. Uh, he prayed every day. I'm just kind of quoting loosely from a passage that was written about him. He prayed every day for two uh, young men, and they were sons of a friend of his youth. He prayed every, do, every day for over 50 years for them. And what did he say about He said, they have not come to Christ yet, but they will. How can it be otherwise? There is the promise of God. <laughs> One of them prayed to receive Christ shortly after his funeral and one came to Christ a few years later. That's faith. That's long-term persistence in prayer. All right. Moving on to the last step down from the mountaintop, verses 22 and 23. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Can I trust Jesus when he gives me very bad news? When he gives the news of you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Can I trust Jesus in his sovereign goodness that he's in control? I just want to say one quick thing about this uh, pronouncement of Jesus. It's the second time that he said something like this in the book of Matthew. The first one was in just the last chapter, John 16. And after he said it, that's when Peter pulled him aside and said, this will never happen, right? You remember that? This one today is the second time. Matthew 20 has the third time. So he tells him at least three times this is going to happen. Guess what? Mark has three times and they parallel these three passages. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. Guess what? Luke also has three and they parallel these ones. Luke 9, 22, Luke 9:44, 44, and Luke 18, 32 and 33. And you don't have to write those down. I just want you to know that they are there. Three times in Mark, in Matthew, three times in Mark, three times in Luke. I'll be delivered into the hands. Of, there's a little bit of a difference, but they all include at least these, except for one in Luke, the other eight. I'll be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill me, and I'll be raised on the third day. Let's go back to the beginning of the sermon. Remember, we agreed. Climbing a 14er, trying to get to the top, it's a lot of work, a ton of work, and a lot of time. If the mountaintop is salvation and eternal life in the presence of the glory of the eternal Father, um, if that's the mountaintop, who does the work to get us to the top of that mountain. You know, we don't do any of that work. Jesus does all the heavy lifting to get us to the top of that mountain when he was delivered into the hands of men when they killed him and then by the power of the Father he was raised on the third day. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So when on the mountaintop, stay grounded. Listen to Jesus. Listen to my son. When faced with needs, great or small, pray to him. He gives us these magnificent, unbelievable promises that we must believe in, and we must claim. When tempted to do things in your own power, when you have great need, back away from it depend on Jesus, not yourself. Otherwise, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? When given bad news, maybe the worst news that they could have imagined, will you trust in the sovereign goodness, and the sovereign plan of Jesus? In a moment, I'm going to ask the communion team to come forward, but first listen to this. We celebrate our relationship with God each week by remembering that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, communion team, please come forward. And as we move to communion, there are three possible movements for you. If you trust in Jesus as your Savior, please come forward. Take the bread. And dip it in the wine, which is the non clear glass, or dip it in the grape juice, which is in the clear glass, representing the body and blood of Jesus. If you're not to the point of trusting Jesus quite yet, you may just want to stay seated and think about what Jesus did for you on the cross and respond to him. If you sense that you need prayer about some specific issue that you're facing, whether great or small, our prayer team members, our prayer team members, have dedicated the next few minutes of their life to listen to you and to pray with you. Please use them. They would be delighted to pray for you. All right, let's pray. Lord, you said to the disciples and you say to us, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Help us, O Lord, to first of all take the time to listen and then help us to have the ear and the quietness to listen. When faced with needs, great or small, remind us, remind us, and help us to pray to him. When tempted to do things in our own power, remind us and show us what it looks like to depend upon him and not ourselves. And when given bad news, help us to trust in him, in you, in your sovereign goodness, and your sovereign good plan for our lives. Broken as we are, Just like that generation, this generation is broken, and we're broken. But build these things, prayer, dependence, and trust into our lives. I pray in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at FCCLawrence.com.